You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So Matthew, open up your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at three verses for today. Um, so we're continuing our series in, in the book of Matthew, but specifically we're looking at um, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus, of course, greatest preacher ever. It wasn't Charles Spurgeon or anyone else, it was Jesus. <laughs> um, I know you, that you just sat down, but would you stand again just so we can, um, I love to, to show honor in this way through our outside posture to read the word. So Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. And this is what God, God's word says. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this powerful word. I thank you for your word that um, still has the power to save the gospel still has the power to save the message of the gospel still has the power to save for all those that believe i pray that our hearts would believe this morning father if there's anyone in here in this space that does not believe that does not know you as their personal lord and savior i pray father that you would open the eyes of the heart that you would reveal them the gospel and that they would fully commit to follow you i pray this in jesus mighty name amen you may be seated so today we are talking about everyone's favorite spiritual discipline, fasting. Huh? Right? Right? It's very true in many Christian circles. Fasting is a forgotten spiritual discipline. And many Christians have little to no experience when it comes to fasting. Or the experience that you've had with fasting was possibly negative. Is that you? Is that no? maybe. It was either surrounded by legalism, maybe, or you were really grumpy and you just had a horrible experience. Yet, when Jesus talks about fasting here in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, and once again, he's talking about it as, as what? As an expectation. Isn't that interesting? As an expectation, this is, this is one of those things that you do as a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. He expects us to do it. This is one of the three core practices that we see in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus addresses. Remember what the first one was? He was giving. And then Lucas preached on it last week. And then prayer. And today, fasting. Three core practices that Jesus is saying, man, I expect my genuine, my followers to just have this as a part of their life. Someone said it like this. And I modified this quote. This is kind of like someone else in OV too. Jesus assumes that one of the three core practices of his disciples was giving, which we get. We kind of get giving, right? Prayer, which we love talking about. And fasting, which we totally neglect. End quote. 
and I think that this quote accurately describes the last three weeks of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. The last three weeks of sermons. Two weeks ago, we talked about giving, right? And, and, and most of us are like, yeah, I think we get it. You know, God is super generous and we ought to be generous like our God. Sure, we understand that our flesh doesn't like it, right? But we get it. Our attitude towards giving is kind of like a necessary evil, <laughs> right, in a way. And, and yet, it's a significant act of worship. And then prayer is one of those, and Lucas talked about it last week. And then prayer is one of those things that we always just love talking about. Like, hey, yeah, we should pray. Yeah, we should pray. We should get together and pray. And then you talk about it for two hours and then you don't pray, you know? So something that we love talking about, well, we don't pray as much or we pray very little. And then our attitude on fasting is like deer in the headlights. What, what do you mean I'm skipping lunch? What? That's weird. Why? That's so weird. I'm supposed to what? So church today, my goal is, cards on the table, my goal for today is to convince us, convince myself and all of us here, that if we're not fasting regularly as a part of life, as a lifestyle, we're missing on so much. We're forfeiting so much blessing that God wants to give to us. That's my goal. Lord, help me. I guess I'll, I'll throw this out right at the beginning and say that fasting is not a commandment. It is not a commandment. If you look at the Old Testament, there was only one day that God expected his people to fast, and that was the day of atonement. And, and we know that when Jesus came, he fully satisfied all the requirements of atonement. Additionally, there's no command in the New Testament about fasting, Jesus doesn't tell us, Jesus doesn't command us to fast. But let me put it to you like this. Have you ever tried to perform a task? Have you ever worked on a project that you did, did not have the tools, the right tools for that project? No, well, it's gotta be some guys in here or girls that, yeah, sure. And the longer you had to work at this project, the more frustrated you got. And actually, it took you forever to finish the project, if indeed you finished the project. I had many of these experiences, but maybe many of you know I worked in construction for quite a few years. And right when I started, I started with, with a buddy of mine, and we all, we, we, um, we, we had, what we had was Mickey Mouse tools. That's what a contractor told us when he saw our tools for the, at our very first job on the site. Those are Mickey Mouse tools, guys. Go back to the store and buy some real tools. <laughs> and, okay, nevertheless, we were supposed to install this tile border around this fireplace at a doctor's house, right? And if you know anything about tiles, you know that you need to have some sort of a wet saw, some automatic machine <laughs> that can help you do the job right. And all we had was Mickey Mouse tools, right? We, we, had, a, we had a saw all right, but it was a handsaw. It was a handsaw. It was a manual saw. And to be honest with you, it took about 30 minutes to cut a tile. It actually took 30 minutes, 50 blisters, and a hand that was good for nothing for the rest of the month because you were so sore from cutting one tile. That's what it took to cut a single tile. That's, it was crazy. It was a crazy job. You can imagine the frustration we experienced working that job, not to mention the crappy, crappy job that we did. I don't even know how that guy paid us. Actually, I don't even remember if he paid us or not. 
But let me ask us this question. There's a point to all of this. How in the world do we think that we can survive the battles against sin without fasting? Without this very important tool in our spiritual toolbox, fasting. How do we think that we can stand against the overwhelming attacks and temptations of the devil coming our way on a daily basis without this very important tool, fasting? So fasting is a, is a tool designed by God for a specific purpose, designed by God. And I would argue that if you're missing on some of these spiritual disciplines, spiritual tools that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and of course, being in God's word and prayer are the two core ones that we always kind of talk about. But if you're missing out on some of the other ones that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, like giving and then fasting today, you're actually missing out on something that God wants to do in your life. We're missing on some growth that God wants to bring about in our lives. We are forfeiting on some spiritual blessing that God wants to give to us. Does that make sense? I want to read the three verses again because there's an overarching principle that I want us to hear again. And we've heard it actually for the last two weeks, but we should do it again because Jesus preaches on it again. So let me just read it again. And when you fast, Jesus says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face. That's kind of like a modern day translation, take a shower. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. What I want to point out is that Jesus' focus here, again, in this passage, is not necessarily fasting, even though we're going to talk about it, but it's not fasting. It's actually righteousness. You remember the last two sermons? The, 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 the right kind of righteousness, actually, or righteous living. This is the third example that he gives. And we've looked at this, you know, for the last two weeks, like I said. But I want to go over it again because Jesus is kind of saying the same thing here in our passage today. And if he's saying it again, that I do not want us to miss the point. And this is what he's saying, the overarching point. God rewards humble and not hypocritical righteousness. We've seen it last week. Lucas touched on it briefly, but that's the overarching principle. And then we touched on it two weeks ago. So God rewards humble and not hypocritical righteousness. He's using the same language, namely that if you're doing something, if you're practicing your, your righteousness in order to be seen by others, you've already received your reward in full, he says, because you've already received the applause and the glory from others. But if you do, if you do these acts of righteousness in secret, Your father who is in heaven, he says, will reward the things that you've done in secret. And essentially, because we we can get the wrong idea here, the problem isn't the fact that you did something good and someone saw you. And we we talked about this, right? So for instance, if you want to go and and mow the lawn um, in your neighbor's lawn, right? And and, and you want to just do something nice for them. You want to serve them. You don't have to wear a ski mask to do that, right? You may have some cops show up. So the problem isn't the fact that, that, you know, that you were seen, 
right? The problem is that you really enjoyed being seen. And that's the difference. Does that make sense? The problem is when the whole reason you're doing it, you're mowing your, your neighbor's lawn is that, man, I just, I just, I hope someone sees me. I hope he sees me. I want to score some points, you know, because I want something from him or whatever the case is. So when it comes to secret versus seen, secret versus seen, what's at the very heart of these heart postures is humility versus hypocrisy or humble versus hypocritical. A humble heart versus a hypocritical heart. And Paul in Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, he's addressing slaves and masters. And it's the same principle that we see in our three verses. Then he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And, and here we go. Not by the way of eye service. It's the same principle that we have in our, in our, in our passage. But as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. We all, know, we all know what doing something by eye service means, right? It, it, it means that you only work when your boss just kind of walks in and, you know, looks over your shoulders like, oh, you know, and you maybe had one of those jobs and, and your heart was not really in it. So your boss walks in and then you kind of start wiping stuff down like, oh, you know, I'm you know, hard at work. And as soon as he leaves, you go back to your phone, scrolling on social media, right? And that's the idea of hypocritical service. But do you know what really um, can happen, church? We can kind of serve God like that if we're not careful. We can serve God only when someone else is looking, only when someone else is noticing. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is, do you follow me not just in public, but in private as well? What do you do at home when you go home? And that's how you can tell if someone has a genuine righteousness, they are actually following Jesus when no one really knows, when no one really notices. Not just in public, not just at church. We, we don't only pray at church, but we do it at home. We're not only in the word at church, but we're in the word on a daily basis. The genuine disciples of Jesus Christ give money and live generously, whether or not they get one of those big, large checks for everyone to see or not. So how do you know, how do we know that we're, what we're doing is genuine and we're doing it with a humble attitude and not hypocritical for others to see? How do we know this? How do we keep our hearts in check? Well, if you remember two weeks ago, we gave a bunch of questions, but let me give us another one. Here's one quick heart check that we can use. It's a simple question that you can ask yourself to measure your motives. And the question is this, who gets the glory. Who's getting the glory? Yeah, God should, for sure. Who gets the glory? Or, or, or you know, you did this act of righteousness. Who gets the glory for that? And are you doing it for people to see you? Or, or are people seeing Jesus? Are people seeing the gospel? Are people seeing the Father in heaven? I mean, there's absolutely no reason to take a selfie and post it all over social media with a hashtag fasting today, hashtag hungry, hashtag spiritual. There's absolutely no reason for you to draw attention to yourself. No reason. Now, if there's a missional reason, a missional reason, if there's an evangelistic reason to do a good deed, to practice righteousness because it'll actually make God 
be the focus and be seen. Now, those are the things that we should pursue and do in public. Sure. You should practice those kinds of things. Does that make sense? So there's a quick heart check that we can all practice here by asking ourselves this question. Who gets the glory? Do I get the glory or does God get the glory? And this can get really, we got to read the fine print in our hearts because sometimes you don't even know what's in your heart. You really got to spend time in prayer and see what's in there. Because a lot of times it's not just pure evil. Yeah, I get the, no, no, it's mixed emotions and they're just intertwined with good emotions. We just got to analyze all that in prayer and through God's word. May God help us with that. With all that in mind, and by the way, that's kind of a review for the last two weeks because it's been the same overarching principle for prayer as well and same one for giving. So for the rest of the sermon, I want to focus on fasting, on fasting. Now, I don't, I don't think our problem is that we're fasting so much that we're drawing attention to ourselves. I don't think that's our problem here in the West, in America, and we're being hypocritical, right? I would say that the problem for most American churches is that we never do it. Ha. Huh. <laughs> and the problem is that Jesus expects it. So how, what do we do with that? Making a practice of fasting should be on the resume of a genuine disciple of Christ. So I want to talk about what fasting is, a biblical, a biblical understanding of what fasting is. And then I want to give three quick reasons to convince us to pursue fasting as a lifestyle, as a practice, just as Jesus expects it. First, what is fasting? What is it? What is it? Maybe we've done it, maybe we haven't, but what is it? Biblical fasting is this. Here's a simple definition. At least we can start from this point. It's abstaining from food to depend on God abstaining from food to depend on God. Let me ask a question. Would you, would you agree with me that more Christians have fasted or are fasting for fitness than they've fasted or are fasting for their faith? I think so, right? I, I'm doing intermittent fasting. I'm doing CrossFit. I'm doing this and that, and it's the new fat or whatever. But have you fasted for the purpose of depending on God? Because that's what biblical fasting is. And it's not that you just skip lunch, right? You know, because oftentimes I forget to pack lunch and, and you know, I, I skip lunch. Am I, am I fasting in that day? Am I accidentally fasting? No, no, I'm not. Fasting is this intentional, I'm intentionally skipping food for the purpose of dependence on God. And by the way, biblical fasting, and I have to say this, and this, thank God for days like this where we can talk about some of these things. And biblical fasting is different than, you know, because sometimes we'll use the language of, yeah, I'm going to fast from social media. Is that fasting? Well, let's, let's look at it. I'm fasting from online shopping. We need to know that there's a difference between fasting and abstaining from something, right? And for some of us, we need to abstain from social media. Sure, let's do it. Or abstain from online shopping or fill in the blank. Abstaining from something that seems to have a hold of our hearts. It's healthy. It's good, right? It's it, to put a boundary or a limit. It is super healthy, let me tell you. But biblical fasting, biblical fasting doesn't have to do with online shopping or social media. It's specifically this idea that there's a connection. I'll say this again. It's specifically this idea that there's a connection between your stomach, your stomach and what the Bible calls our flesh. 
That's the biblical understanding of it. The desires of the flesh, the desires of our bodies. Maybe this is a good time to say this uh, about fasting too. There are three kinds of fasting that we find throughout Scripture. Three kinds. The first one is a, a normal fast. And I think this one's the, kind of the most popular among us as well. It's a normal fast and it includes only water. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we see Jesus fasting for 40 days only with water. The second one is a partial fast, a partial. So there's a normal fast and then a partial fast. So there's a partial fast, which is a restricted diet. In Daniel 10, uh, we, Daniel sees a particularly disturbing vision and he doesn't really know what to do with it, so he fasts. But in, in his fast, he doesn't have any dessert, any meat, or any wine. He restricts his diet. He still has some food, but it's a simple and basic, stripped-down kind of a diet. That's the second kind of fasting that we see in Scripture. And then the third kind of fasting that we see in Scripture is a, an absolute fast. An absolute fast, which, by the way, it shouldn't be done for prolonged periods of time. But an absolute fast is no food or drink whatsoever. And we see this in Acts chapter 9, verse 9, when Paul uh, uh, sees Jesus on the way to Damascus and he's blinded. And one of the details of that story is that while he's blinded for three days, he doesn't eat or drink absolutely anything as a way of deep repentance, as a way of seeking God, right? And these are the three kinds of fasting that we see throughout the Bible. So if we want to be biblical, this is it. With that in mind, If that's what fasting is, skipping a meal, skipping food for a certain amount of time, why should we do it? Why? Why should we do it? We're going to look at three reasons why we should pursue fasting as a lifestyle, as a practice, just as Jesus expected. And the reason number one, and I think it's the most powerful one, if you ask me, at least for our culture uh, or in this season of our culture is this. Fasting teaches us to say no to our desires. Fasting teaches us to say no to our desires. The reality is that our culture teaches us to never say no to our desires, doesn't it? Our culture does it, that we live in, it teaches us that, that we're, we're being repressive if we say no to something that we want. And to be honest with you, I can't think of worse advice in the world. The worst advice is just to follow your heart. That is horrible. This horrible idea of always doing what you want, what you feel, what you want to experience because we want to do some pretty messed up stuff sometimes, don't we? Things that are pretty destructive to others and things that are self-destructive. Why do you think that we are where we are in society? (laughs) Because we follow our hearts, that's why. This immoral decline in society because we want to do what we want to do because we follow our heart's desires. What a lie and what a deception. And so what fasting does, and by the way, this isn't to say that food is an evil desire, by the way. Still have lunch today and enjoy it. Is food an evil desire? Absolutely not. Clearly not. It's a God-given desire. You know, he wants us to enjoy all that he provides for us, especially good food, right? So what we're doing in fasting is saying no, and check this out, saying no to a normal, healthy, physical desire, and that discipline will translate in saying no to an unhealthy, destructive, and sinful desire. Because if you can say no to lunch, If you can say no to lunch, odds are you can probably say no. At least you'll have a little bit more willpower to say no to porn or to anger. 
truth be told, or some of the other sinful appetites and desires of the flesh. Do you know what our, our three enemies are? The three main enemies of our soul. Do you know what they are, who they are? Yeah. The, the world, the flesh, the devil. The world, the flesh, the devil. And fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines. Fasting is one of those practices that specifically targets the flesh. It targets those unsanctified habits of sin in our life. How's your fasting going? How are you doing in your battles with sin, with temptation? Mm. We may be talking about a solution that God wants to use in our lives to bring victory. I'm thinking about Paul and how he describes the enemies of Christ. Philippians 3.19. This is what he says. Their end is destruction. And check this out. Their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Isn't that interesting? And I would say that this saying, and their God is their belly, is not that far off from modern day America. <laughs> if it feels good, do it. And it's this idea of sensuality, the idolatry of sensuality. Sensuality is living for your senses, living for what feels good. Isn't that our society today? Isn't that us sometimes? The reality is that oftentimes we don't want to think about the fact that God is our belly. Like what? But for many of us, this is a reality. And we have never learned the discipline of saying no to something that we really want, we really want to do, we really want to experience. And yet, it's an incredibly important spiritual discipline. This is maybe one of the most significant things that fasting has to offer to us. And yet we're so estranged from it. In fact, when you're mentoring someone who's struggling with specifically sinful sexual desires, which is a big area where fasting comes into play, by the way, you need to just ask that person, have you ever tried fasting? Try it next time. They'll probably answer this way. Why would I want to do that? That's so telling right there. That's so telling right there. This is what you want to say to them at that point. Why don't you just skip breakfast and lunch next week, every single day, and spend that time, you know, when you would eat, just in God's word, in prayer, and we'll come back together next week and we'll talk about it, see how it went. John Mark Comer says it like this, and I quote, Fasting trains our bodies to not get what they want, at least not all the time. This is yet another reason why in a culture so run by feelings and desires, fasting is a bizarre idea even to Christians. We assume that we must get what we want to be happy, and by, by want, we often mean what our flesh wants. This simply isn't true. End quote. This instant gratification, fast food microwave world that we live in, that, that, that is screaming to us uh, to, to give in to every desire, every evil, animalistic, primal, and sinful desire that you might have, that you might experience. And I'm here to tell us this morning, church, not only does that not lead to happiness, but it leads to hollowness and destruction. And it's this never-ending law of diminishing return. 
You put in more, but you get back less and less and less and less. And that's how people get addicted. And, 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 and you go down that slippery slope and there's a dark path that awaits for you. And so church, let's try fasting well, the right way through Christ. Because just fasting doesn't work, right? How about we pursue fasting just as Jesus expected from us, just as Jesus expected from his genuine disciples and followers? It would do us well to remember the first sin of mankind in Genesis 3. And sure, many components are involved here. Many components are involved here. But at the most basic level, did you realize that the first original sin was the inability to abstain from eating? Many components, many dynamics. I get it. I understand. It's Adam and Eve having this forbidden fruit that they couldn't say no. They couldn't say no to their bellies. They couldn't say no to food. Genesis 3, 6 says it like this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now there are, again, I want to say this over and over again. There are other things at play here, other dynamics and factors. I get it. The deception of the enemy. Sure. There's this pride that you want to, you know, you want to become equal with God. I get it. I understand. But at a basic level, it was an appeal to the flesh. That's what it was. The fruit looked good. It seemed good. I'm sure there was some salivating going on. That looks delicious. I want to have some, right? So let me ask you this church. How many of our sins are linked to our inability to control our bodies? How many of our sins are linked to our inability to control our bodies? Or to our lack of this amazing fruit of the Spirit, self-control or self-discipline? Let me answer that. Many in my life. Many. Even sins like anger. Sins like, you know, you want to say the wrong thing and you just, oh, I got to do it right now. I got to, right? These gut impulses gratifying that instant desire that we feel and yet what's phenomenal. And some of you might ask at this point, how are you going to preach the gospel in a sermon about fasting? Well, buckle up. Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do. Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do. That's one of the, the things that is being replayed, replayed here. Let me explain. When we look at Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, there's this parallel in Matthew 4 when Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights in the greatest understatement, I believe, in the entire Bible, and he says he was hungry. <laughs> if I'm, I'm, I'm fasting for one day and I'm crying. I'm like, Lord, I'm just dying here, you know? <laughs> And after 40 days, the devil comes to him, and, and same as the devil coming to Adam and Eve to tempt him. And the first temptation is to turn stones into bread. And this is how Jesus responded. He didn't say, man, what a great idea, Satan. Oh, I'm going to take up on that. That's such a cool idea. I'm so hungry, right? The desire of the eyes, and, and maybe I'll turn those stones to bread and have myself a great, great, you know, meal. But he doesn't do that. Matthew 4, 4 says this. It is written, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
So Jesus overcomes that temptation, and then he overcomes the next two temptations that come his way. And not only does he overcome those three temptations, but every single temptation that he ever faced. I know what you're going to say. He was the son of God. Sure. But he is the son of God in flesh and blood. With an actual body who faced actual temptations just as we do. And by the way, he lived in the, in the midst of the fallen world just like we do. Sure, with the amount of peer pressure. And, and I would actually say with a hind amount of spiritual pressure that you and I face. And he overcame every single temptation. And might I add, he did not tap into his divine powers, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is significant because we know that the wages of sin is death. This is the gospel. And Jesus never, ever sinned. So he should never, ever have to die, right? So why is Jesus hanging on the cross, being tortured, facing the wrath of God? Was it for his own sins? No, of course not. It was for the sins of you and me. Paul in Romans 5, he talks about Jesus as this um, interesting parallel to Adam. And he says that, that you, you have the first Adam, first original Adam, and then you have Jesus as the second Adam. And this is what he says in Romans 5, 19. He says, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The reality is that there's no amount of righteous deeds, friend, that you can do to earn your way into heaven to earn your spot around the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, to earn your name in the Lamb's book of life, to, to earn your place in the throne room of God, to worship, him, to worship Him forever and ever. There's no amount of fasting. There's no amount of prayer. There's no amount of giving. The righteousness that we need is Christ's righteousness. We need to be clothed and covered in His righteousness. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ, that's how we obtain that righteousness. I just want this to be clear. Accepting that his death on a cross was for you, it was on your behalf, and you stop trying to climb that ladder to God to earn your way to God, but you fully surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And you ask him to cleanse you from, from all your hypocritical unrighteousness and to clothe you in Christ's righteousness. And it's through full faith and full trust in Jesus Christ that you can be made righteous, that you can be made forgiven. Full circle now. And by the power of the resurrection, Jesus can raise you up to a new life where we have the most amazing helper that can come in and help us now. The Holy Spirit that can enable you to live more in his standards to pursue living in righteousness. And specifically, to be able to overcome the temptations coming your way through the same power, the power of the Holy Spirit that is in Christ as well but we need to fully surrender. And that's why there's very little victory in our lives because we have a problem with fully surrendering our lives to the Holy Spirit. And here we go to finish the point. And practically one way that we can do so fully or surrender more and more to the Holy Spirit so that he can help us is by fasting. And as we fast, it's as if we're saying, Holy Spirit, come and help me. And he says, okay, there's some skin in the game. I'll come and help. Isn't that interesting? 
It's not that we do the work, we don't. <laughs> but it's kind of like we're partners with the Holy Spirit. We can't just sit back and, you know, well, God's going to do this work in my life. Yeah. <laughs> There's a responsibility that we have. There's a responsibility that we have. And I think fasting is one of those disciplines that, man, through it, we're inviting the Holy Spirit, come and help me because I cannot do this on my own. So the first reason why we should fast on a regular basis is because fasting teaches us to say no to our desires. But please remember, surrender more and more of your heart to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Okay, so that was the first reason that we should uh, pursue fasting. The second reason is this, and I'm not even going to spend that, not even probably five minutes for the next two and three, just so you're aware of the time frame here. But the second reason is this. Fasting is a way of mourning with our bodies. Fasting is a way of mourning with our bodies. One of the things that us Americans don't generally do well is grief and loss. When somebody is sad, we usually say, hey, you want to grab a beer after work. That's odd. Why? <laughs> and, and sure, I don't want to shame anyone if this is your coping mechanism with grief and loss, you know, food and drink. And yet, biblically speaking, because we want to be biblical, we don't want to be American or any other, we want to be biblical more than anything. This is how we see fasting in the Bible a lot of times. I think maybe most times. It's when something bad happens, people actually grieve, not just through their words or tears, but through fasting. Did you know that? It's a way of mourning loss. Do we do that? In 2 Samuel 1, 11, 12, we see Saul and Jonathan die. And this, this is what David does. When David took hold of his then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted, here we go, fasted, until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Excuse me. So Saul and Jonathan die, and a bunch of soldiers die with them. And the first reaction of the other soldiers that didn't die, and David's reaction, was to fast. The same thing for us when we grieve loss. And I'm just going to just say this, and I got to preach on it because it's in the Bible. Fasting can be a very powerful first reaction. Let's try it. I don't know, maybe God's going to do something amazing through it. Additionally, and this is the bigger point, this is what I want to get to. You not only see fasting as a way of mourning suffering and loss, but what we see in scripture is mourning over our own sins. And this is the bigger point, I believe. It's a way of deep and genuine repentance as well. We see this in Nehemiah 1.4, and we should, maybe we should remember this because we went through Nehemiah. But Nehemiah receives word that the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king of Persia. So this is what he does. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What's interesting, if you continue reading Nehemiah, he's not just He's not only mourning because of the situation of vulnerability that Jerusalem is in. He actually goes on his prayer and you can read this. He's praying prayers of repentance for the sins of the people, his, his countrymen. And then not only he prays for them, but he prays for his own sins, mourning for his own sins as well. So he's mourning, but he's mourning more than just the loss. He's mourning sin the sin of the people, and his sin as well. And I would say this to us and to you. 
And maybe God is speaking to you right now, one of you, and really kind of directly. If there's a moment in your life where the Holy Spirit convicts you through a conversation, or even right now as I'm, as I'm preaching, through Scripture, the, and the Holy Spirit, like a ton of bricks, just is hitting you of an ongoing, maybe even decade-long sin, or, or something that you did this week, or, or whatever, or it's been going on for, for a while, and then you're callous towards it. And he's calling you to repentance. This is a moment worth fasting for. To show severity, to show seriousness, to show humility in that you're taking your repentance seriously. That's what we see in the word. So the second reason that we just looked at is that fasting is a way of mourning with our bodies. Mourning loss and then more importantly, mourning sin, the sin in our life. The third reason is this, fasting turns up the volume in prayer. The last one, fasting is turning up the volume in prayer. Now, this reason is tricky to explain, I think, and is easy to misunderstand, but let me just explain it this way. There's something about our posture towards God and how we approach Him in prayer. At least I see that in the Word. Posture matters. Posture of the heart matters most. I want us to get that. Posture of the heart matters most. And it's healthy and good sometimes to allow our outside posture to reflect the posture of our hearts. Does that make sense? I see it in the word. And it illustrates, and to illustrate this, I want to give us two examples of two different kings from the Old Testament. And the first one is King Ahab. This king went down in history as literally one of the worst kings ever. The situation happens when this horrible king, King Ahab, wants a garden. And so what he does, he takes this, this guy's plot of land. It's very convoluted, and he has him killed for it, right? Pretty messed up stuff. But Elijah the prophet shows up, and he says, basically, you'll pay for this, you'll die. Well, let's look at the passage. First Kings 21, 27 to 29. This is what God's word says. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Interesting. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Unless God said this, I'll be honest with you, I'd be so tempted to interpret this a different way. Oh, but essentially what God is saying is God can tell the sincerity of an evil king's heart. And we knew that because he tore his clothes and he fasted in his prayer. And God, in a way, forgave Ahab and delayed the judgment and the punishment to the next generation. That's that's what I just read. That's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? So we have this example, King Ahab's prayer for repentance and forgiveness was heard because of how he humbled himself. Okay, I'm going to give us another example of another king who went down in the history as the greatest king that ever lived. One of the greatest kings, King David, a man after God's own heart. And King David had a dark season in his life. We all know about that season, right? Where he sinned with Bathsheba and then he had, a, he had a, her husband murdered and then she bore a child out of that situation. And God, through the prophet Nathan, tells David that the child would die as a punishment. Let's just read it really quickly. 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 18. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. Check this out. And David fasted. And went in and lay all night on the ground. 
And the elders of this house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child dies, died. This is a really sad story because the baby, the kid dies. But can you see the contrast? Really evil king, fasts, humbles himself, goes about dejectedly. God hears his prayer. And then David, one of the greatest kings, he fasts, he prays, and the child still dies. Here's the point. Fasting may turn up the volume on your prayer. And then it's the same point that Lucas was making from last week. So fasting may turn up the volume on prayer, but we do not manipulate God in prayer. We do not manipulate God in prayer. And that's huge. That is huge. Just because you fasted, it doesn't mean that you're twisting God's arm. It's not like there's a magic formula. You know, fast for five days and pray for two days and God's will still will be done in every situation. Just like Lucas preached last time. No amount of meals that you skip will force God's hand. God doesn't have to obey you when you, when you do all the right spiritual practices. But there's an element where fasting shows seriousness and humility. And I would encourage us that during specific times where you're just crying out to God, whether it's a petition for your needs, your wife is sick, your, your, your child is sick, and, or maybe just deep times of intercessory prayer. And by the way, I think that the benefits of what we're doing as a church in this season are amazing. Our uninterrupted chain of prayer and fasting, how fitting that we're talking about fasting now. Praying for power and movement for, for, for people to respond, you know, uh, to the gospel on Easter. It's an awesome thing that we're doing. Praying for revival in our community. That's amazing. Praise God. And yet, we just have to acknowledge God's will be done. Amen? Because fasting is not a way to manipulate God, but it does turn up the volume in prayer. We become more in tune with God's will and heart. That's what happens when we fast and pray. And what a glorious thing that is. What a gift. And when God is doing something through us, church, when God is doing something through us, because we're praying, God grow us, and he has been. God grow us. He's always doing something in us. And prayer and fasting is a great platform for God to do that something in us. Does that make sense? Additionally, Prayer and fasting is not only us coming to God with intercessory prayer and bringing our petitions before him, and, but there's this amazing thing that happens through our fasting and prayer. We get to hear God's voice more clearly too. What a gift in, in this noise of a, of a life and world. So fasting can turn up the volume and hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit more clearly as well. And what a grace that is. If you're in time of deep discernment and not just need, or you're asking God for provision, but you're discerning his will for your life in a specific situation, then fasting can be a great tool in turning up the volume in, in this kind of a situation as well. Uh, let me just give you a, a, two verses, Acts 13, 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is one of those details that are so easy to skip over. We can easily say, yeah, yeah, but they knew that Paul and Barnabas was going to, they were called to ministry, you know. 
they decided to commission them anyways. But, but the question is this, why did they decide to commission them for this specific missionary journey? Because as they were fasting, they literally heard the Holy Spirit say, do it. What you're doing is an awesome thing. So in seeking God's will, the Holy Spirit makes it clear. Once again, this is not a formula where you fast for one meal and the heavens open up and you hear God's audible voice, right? But at the same time, I would just encourage us, the deeper, the discerning wisdom that you're seeking in direction for your life, man, those are moments of fasting. May God help us. So with all that in mind, I just want to ask you this question. I want, to, I want to be practical. I want us to be practical and not just talk theory here. Jesus says, when you fast, not if. So I want to ask you, when will you fast? When are you going to do it? Are you going to start implementing this tool in your life? Are you going to start practicing fasting? And again, not just because it's an amazing thing, you just kind of, you do it separately from your walk with God. No, 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 no. If you've never tried it, it would be a great start for you to start this week. I'm just saying. We have, I believe, three more weeks of our uninterrupted fasting and prayer chain before Easter. Why don't you sign up for one of those days? Seriously, I want to challenge you. Even if all the days are covered, and I think all of them are except one, I think April 8th is still outstanding. There's nothing wrong with doubling up. Do it. I want to challenge you. Would you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.